0: Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents. So that it might flourish as a place where jesus is known for service times and more information about our church visit npcdublin.org and now pastor dave shooter when the boys were little uh, and we had nighttime, uh, bedtime, story time, uh, I invented a series of stories about Cleopas the platypus. And uh, it's, it's true. Uh, and and they, I don't know if they know it or not, but the, the name Cleopas comes from the story. Cleopas the platypus had a horse friend named Ferdinand, and they had many adventures together, uh, which is neither here nor there, uh, other than to identify that if you are here and you're thinking about Jesus... Uh, and you've come the Sunday after Easter, Uh, it is important for you to understand that what the gospel writers uh, write down and report back to us are events that happened in history, uh, that they identify characters who really lived and were members of the church like Cleopas, uh, that one of, I think, the good apologetics for the veracity of the Easter stories are how the men and women who engaged with the risen Jesus were themselves confused during the interactions. Uh, If you were actually Cleopas, uh, you might read this report as somewhat unflattering. I mean, the Lord of the universe does call him foolish. Uh, And yet uh, you uh, are invited to follow their journey of discovery. Uh, of the risen Jesus, and that 's what we have the opportunity to do today and so, uh, with that in mind, um, after we read the Easter report from the garden tomb uh, that he is risen, he is not here, Luke gives us a story to encourage encourage us that god 's word in Scripture is completely sufficient to motivate our belief in Jesus and his resurrection. And this is important for us some, you know, two millennia later as we investigate Jesus and the Christian faith. It's also important for us if you are already Christians, uh, and move through times of discouragement or times of disillusionment because those are uh, the times that we find these men in. And I think that one of the very important lessons from this section relates to Uh, the significance and then the relative significance of personal experience. Let me explain this way. Personal experience, we know, is a great teacher. Uh, You can think about a time when you learned something challenging uh, or were about to undertake something that felt risky uh, and and how the personal experience of that taught you much. Uh, When I was young, our youth pastor was very much kind of a outdoors, outward-bound kind of guy, and so uh, he would frequently allow and and lead the students on camping trips. One of the camping trips to the Allegheny National Forest involved rappelling, and so we all, as 8th graders, were learning to rappel, which the first time that you learn to rappel is a little bit of an unnatural experience. You have to learn about how the ropes work. You have to learn about how your brake hand is going to work. And then at some point, you have to actually trust that it's all going to work. And so you, uh, you go through the lessons. Uh, he was a good teacher, and so he had us rappel off of a of short boulder. It was maybe eight, uh, eight foot high and it was experiential learning. Uh, It was learning that the rope system would actually work, that you could do it, uh, and that having had the experience, you could trust the overall process. The announcement that Jesus is alive comes out of the personal experiences of those who knew him well, who expected to find him dead at the tomb when they went to care for the body, who experienced the angel's announcements, he is not here, he is risen, who found Joseph of Arimathea's tomb empty so they knew where they were supposed to look for Jesus. They went to the right place. Uh, in Mary Magdalene's case, she met and conversed alive uh, again with Alive Again Jesus. They had powerful experiences, but the powerful experiences of some did not immediately lead to faith for everyone. Luke reports Uh, that the apostles did not initially believe what the ladies reported from the garden. In verse 10 of uh, chapter 24, just in advance of what Derek read for us, we we learn this. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women uh, with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. And in the very next sentence, Luke describes for us two disillusioned disciples walking away from Jerusalem. Now, they don't know it, but they are about to have a powerful experience with a live again Jesus. But this is my hunch, this is my thesis, and I'll explain why in a moment. That Luke reports their powerful experience of the risen Jesus for the benefit of the generations of people who will not have powerful experiences with the physically risen, risen Jesus. Let me let me explain. Because you might be thinking, I thought this was about the the goodness and truthfulness of the experiences of the first Christians. And it is. But then you might think, now you're telling me that Luke reports a powerful experience with the risen Jesus in order to teach us that we don't need to have the same kind of experiences to believe in him. Here's why. I've I've preached this passage before, uh, but I went back to restudy it and uh, I encountered a helpful question from one pastor, uh, and here's the question. Why does Luke and only Luke of all the gospel writers include this report in his Easter narrative? Here's why, I think. Luke opens his book by telling us that his goal is to write an orderly account about the gospel drawn from eyewitness reports for his friend, having followed all of these things for some time. So Luke is writing his gospel some years removed from the events. And I think that his goal is to affirm the reliability and the sufficiency of written reports for the ongoing church, for the generations of people who won't have firsthand encounters with the risen Jesus. In other words, almost everyone else in human history. That that Luke includes this report for us. And he especially helps us by showing that Scripture is sufficient to speak to the disillusioned, to the discouraged, to the dispirited about the ministry and the majesty of the risen Savior. uh, Challenges breed disillusionment. Discouragement is a reality. Believers get dispirited. We don't always live on the mountaintop. Sometimes to most times we don't experience the mountaintop. We need to know that Scripture is sufficient to speak to us. And the reason that we need to know that it's sufficient to speak to us is that it's Scripture that the risen Savior takes these disciples to on the road. So let's follow the story. First, Jesus says that Scripture is sufficient to explain what happens to the scandalized. Pick up the story in verse 13. That very day, resurrection day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, I I usually read verse 16, uh, wondering if there's something about Jesus's physical appearance that made him unrecognizable. But I do not think that is the connection that Luke wants us to draw. Jesus is hidden from them because they're scandalized by the crucifixion. It's his ministry that's made him unrecognizable. I think we know this from Luke chapter 18. When Jesus tells his disciples of his forthcoming arrest, mistreatment, death and resurrection, Luke reports that they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. So so what is what is hidden is the import of the cross. What is hidden from them is uh, a, a comprehension that God Almighty might be doing the most important thing in human history through the most scandalous event that they could imagine possible. And so the conversation that these two men and Jesus are having highlights that it is the cross that they found scandalous, Look at verse 17. He said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad, gloomy, sullen, dark, as the dictionary tells us. And then Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now you catch the irony, right? Jesus is the only person in Jerusalem who really knows what has happened. (laughs) And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. This is where their disillusionment is revealed. They'd invested big hopes in Jesus. They believed that he was a prophet, they believed that God was with him in a unique way. They accepted his miracles as true, they believed in his words. They hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Redeem means to buy back or to set free from slavery. Possibly they hoped for a certain kind of redeemer, a redeemer who would deliver God's people from Roman occupation, from Herod's excess, from the political motivations of the priesthood. Whatever their agenda was for the redeemer, uh, they believed Jesus was the guy. But they're discouraged. And this becomes more clear. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of uh, the, the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it. What? Just as the women had said, but him they did not see. All of this experience, all of this evidence, but they're disillusioned. And their disillusionment is confirmed by the direction of their walk. They are walking away from the report. They'd heard the women's report. They'd heard of Peter's follow-up visit, but they're walking away from Jerusalem on the day that at least twice in Jesus' ministry, as Luke's gospel reports it, Jesus had spoken of his resurrection. Just as an example, in uh, chapter 9, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer these things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And similarly in chapter 18. So, the, so uh, all, of, all of what they described to Jesus is actually information that they had in advance. And they're walking away from it. They didn't stay around to see if it was true. And their disillusionment has to do with the cross. Jesus says to them in 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The things concerning himself with respect to being a crucified Messiah. Jesus opens their eyes to what the scripture says specifically about the suffering of the Messiah, not his preaching, not his miracles, but his suffering. Now, If you like a Bible study, what a Bible study this would have been. Because what we learn on every page of Scripture from Genesis 3 onward is that God has a plan to save his people and that the plan includes the suffering of the one who will save. He could have just turned to Genesis 3, and he could have uh, read to them the report of God's statement to Adam and Eve uh, about the one who would come to crush the serpent's head, but whose own heel would be struck. He could have passed forward to innumerable stories. I mean, it's impossible to come up with illustrations because it's like everywhere. <laughs> he could have talked to them uh, uh, about Abraham's uh, uh, intended sacrifice of Isaac on an altar and Abraham's face that God would provide a, a lamb and then the Lord's intervention saying that, that, that the sacrifice is not Isaac. He could have have taken them through uh, the story of the first Passover and God's deliverance, his redemption of Israel from Egypt. He could have confirmed to Cleopas and friends uh, the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament where uh, it was by the shedding of blood that sin was atoned for. Which of the psalms could he have taken them to? Many of the psalms he could have taken them to. To Psalm 2, where the psalm writer describes the nations raging against God king. He might have applied Psalm 22, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me to himself? He could have turned to Isaiah and God's promise of a suffering servant in chapter 53 and 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. He could have taken them to innumerable places to show them That the scandal of the crucifixion is exactly how the Savior saves and enters his glory. We could say that Jesus is radically cross-centered. And here in this conversation, he shows these men that not only is the Messiah radically cross-centered, but God the Father is radically cross-centered. And that's why Jesus' people across time and space are radically cross-centered. We are people of the crucified King, who is also the risen King. And generation after generation, when voices have arose within segments of the church, or from outside the church and have wondered, is the message of the cross really necessary to the essence of Christianity? Maybe perhaps Christianity could be better construed uh, as a faith that has love as its heart. Maybe it could be better presented uh, as an opportunity to just find ways to be kind to your neighbors. The, the, The church has always come back to stories like this and to the entire testimony of Holy Scripture and says, no, we are people of a crucified and risen king. So, when you go forward in your life and when you go to a different church and someone like me stands up in a place like this and says, Let me tell you about a story that involves a Jesus that did not die, I want you to promise me you'll do one thing that you will, in that moment, get up out of your seat and walk out the back and never come back. It's a scandalous death. It's a scandalous death that reveals God's shocking grace and mercy. Again in Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. It's echo of the resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And here is what I want you to see. If you get nothing else out of this sermon, catch this critical to Luke's point is that it was sufficient to Jesus who experienced all of this. It was sufficient to Jesus who lived through all of this. It was sufficient to Jesus who was now alive again on the road that all he had to do was show the men the truth from the Bible. That's all he had to do. He did not start with, look at my hands. He started with, look at the Bible. The explanation from the word of God is sufficient to address the spiritual dullness of humanity. And it's also sufficient salvation for the shamed. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for this towards evening. And the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Well, how should we understand Jesus' taking of the bread and blessing it and breaking it? This is debated in the church, but I don't think it needs to remain a mystery to us because Jesus has twice done this before in Luke's gospel. Recently in Luke's gospel, he took bread, blessed and broke it in the upper room instituting the Lord's Supper. And there will be some strands of thought in the church that suggest that what Jesus is doing is he is now reenacting the Lord's Supper for Cleopas and Cleopas's buddy. But I don't think that that's the conclusion that we should make because only well, we only know that 12 of the apostles were in the upper room with Jesus when he instituted the Lord's Supper. That's what we know for sure. So, more likely, I think, is that Jesus' words and actions remind the disciples of the other instance of breaking the bread in the Gospel of Luke, which is found in chapter 9. You can flip over there, look about verse 16, where Jesus has a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children, so maybe 15,000 people there in the wilderness. As night approached on that day, Jesus told the disciples to feed the crowd. And the disciples could account for five loaves and two fish. You know the story, maybe. If you don't know the story, it's a wonderful story. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. the lesson in Luke 9 was that God provided salvation for Israel in the Old Testament exodus by giving them manna when they didn't have food. And now Jesus was here to do better. That Jesus is leading a new exodus. That Jesus had come to save his people in the wilderness. And not just God's Israelite people, but God's people from all across humanity. And Luke, I think, wants us to make this point as Cleopas and his friend hear Jesus bless the bread, watch him break the bread, and it says, then they recognize him. Verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Now, I want you to think about this just for a moment. This is a quiz. You'll do well. I believe in you. It's the first recorded meal in the Bible. Thinking about it, thinking about it, overthinking about it, waiting for Dave to tell me what the answer is, thinking about it. The first recorded meal in the Bible is the unhappy meal that Adam and Eve shared. It's like, I knew it. That's what I was going to say. Here's how the report reads. In uh, Genesis 3 verse 7, Adam and Eve eat. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, guilt, and shame. So they eat the meal and their eyes are opened (laughs) to their big spiritual problem. And in the Greek Old Testament, the words of Genesis three seven are nearly identical to the Greek words of Luke twenty four thirty one, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Luke's language seems too on the nose to be coincidental, because Genesis three is an important story. Luke would have known his Bible, and the Bible that Luke would have known was probably the Greek Old Testament. His language seems too on the nose to be coincidental. He seems to be echoing Genesis 3 in order to highlight this, that that God's saving solution to Adam and Eve's disastrous decision is in their midst. Adam and Eve ate, sinned, their eyes were opened and disaster ensued. Cleopas and friend ate, their eyes were opened and they saw Jesus risen and revealed the giver of life for all of God's people, for all who would descend back to Adam and Eve, which is who? All of the people, Jew and Gentile together, all of the people learning that Jesus is God's crucified and risen King, Savior for all. And then he vanished from their sight. Probably right at the moment where they had some follow-up questions. (laughs) They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures. And they arose at the same hour. And they returned to Jerusalem. The Hebrew word for repentance means change direction. They were walking away from Jesus and Jerusalem, and reports of resurrection that they weren't interested in understanding. They were scandalized by the cross. And then they had the Bible explained to them. And they had the hope of all of fallen humanity revealed to them. And they turned around, they changed direction, they walked back. You might say they repented. And they rose that same hour. Remember, it was late, the day was far gone, and they returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, and they said, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how it was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Opening the scriptures, breaking the bread. Drawing on one Old Testament lesson, salvation in the wilderness to make the point of another Old Testament lesson, God's answer to the promise made to Adam and Eve in the garden so long ago that there would be a Savior who would come. God's word and Scripture, completely sufficient to motivate the belief of the church from generation to generation who hasn't had an encounter with the risen Jesus walking along the road. That's us. It puts experience into proper perspective. Here's how: we have bad experiences, we get disillusioned. And we think, well, maybe the answer to my disillusionment will be better experiences. But I would suggest to you, based on what Jesus teaches us here, that when we have experiences that are bad and disillusionment follows that what Jesus would want us to do is, is come back to the Bible, to read our Bibles, to say there is a King who's crucified for me and who's risen for me. And he's the answer to humanity's problem. And I can follow after him that the word is sufficient for the scandalized and it's sufficient for the ashamed. It's sufficient for me. It's sufficient for you. And so friends, What is your answer to the question? Have you turned around? Have you followed Cleopas and friend back? Have you changed in the power of the Spirit the direction of your life? May it be, because there's one Savior for all of humanity. He has come, he has died, he has risen, he's returning again. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast and for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.